Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, brought to you by Morgan Stanley. Today is Wednesday, February 10th. The impeachment trial is in session, middle seats are still out on Delta, and we're talking about the SPAC boom. The most significant stock market story of 2021 isn't really the one about Robinhood and Reddit and GameStop. It's the one about SPACs, those blank check acquisition companies that are multiplying like gremlins after a midnight snack. If you don't know how a SPAC works, here's the simple explanation. It's a shell company, something that really just exists on paper uh, without a product or revenue put together by a few sophisticated investors or maybe by a company. For example, the serial maker Post Holdings created one just yesterday. The goal of a SPAC is to buy an actual company, a privately held one. And to afford it, the SPAC raises money via an initial public offering, an IPO. And then the SPAC goes hunting for a target. Usually it's got about two years to get that done. And if successful, the acquired company slips into that shell, becoming a public company itself. And the people who manage the SPAC get a pretty nice payday. Oh, and one more thing. SPACs aren't new. They've been around for decades, basically with the same structure. What is new, though, is the number of SPACs. Dozens of new ones formed each and every week, sometimes even a dozen in a single day. And investors are going nuts for them. CNBC created an index tracking the 50 largest SPACs that haven't yet announced a takeover deal, and they're up nearly 14% just in 2021. Again, up nearly 14% for empty shell companies. Is it a boom? Is it a bubble? Both? To try to answer those questions, we're going to be joined by Victoria Grace, who recently formed a $300 million SPAC with an all-female management team. It's called Queen's Gambit Growth Capital, because when there's so many SPACs out there, it can pay to have a memorable name. That conversation in 15 seconds. We are joined now by Victoria Grace, the CEO of Queen's Gambit Growth Capital and also a founding partner of Cully Capital Partners. Let's start big picture here. SPACs have been around for a long time as a structure. Why are there so many of them right now? I think uh, the, the SPAC market evolved tremendously over the last 12 to 18 months where people realizing the benefit of the structure. So I had a, a benefit of going through this transaction last year when I was on the target side with Hylian and uh, firsthand uh, experience on uh, how beneficial this would be for a target and also for investors and on the SPAC side. So for me, um, the benefits um, were clearly demonstrated through that process. What happened, I think, over the last 12 months is the quality of companies willing to go down that path have been improving tremendously. And I think that's the key driver, certainly for me and my team, to form a SPAC and actually go through the process. When you say that, there's a little bit of chicken and egg, right? Like more companies willing to go via SPAC versus more SPACs being formed and thus pitching themselves to companies. But you think it's really on the on the target side that more companies are willing to do it. And that's what's driving more and more SPACs to be formed. So I think, you know, I have a very um, different view on this. I believe that some SPACs are getting formed because of opportunity. And yes, quality is getting better. So opportunity uh, set is there. But I think from our purview, 
I believe quality needs to be on both sides. So therefore, when we formed our SPAC, we were very, very focused on having exceptional team on our side to be able to bring tremendous value to the target besides just capital. Capital is just a commodity. So think about it, the back end of a transaction, adding strategic value, joint venture partnerships, bringing clients, and that's what we're able to deliver through our um, group of um, uh, team members. We'll get into Queen's Gambit specifically in a sec, but I'm curious, you know, you, you talk about capital. Most SPACs that get formed right now are able to IPO. In fact, I don't know of any that have failed. And a lot of them that have gone are raising more than they had originally anticipated. The typical SPAC is trading up in the market, even though, again, there's still kind of an empty shell. Is there not a significant factor of kind of overall stock market bullish froth that's driving this right now? I think it's a structure for investor that's creating this phenomena. So you're protected by trust as investor. So the downside is capped and you're making a bet on a management team that they're going to find a really great target that the uh, market is going to embrace and the stock ultimately go up. There's absolutely no fundamental reason why um, you know the stock should be trading above trust value. Um, so I think part of it is just excitement of, around, um, around the product. And, uh, and obviously, we're in a, in a market that's, uh, that sees the benefit and, uh, and the value in, in doing these transactions for targets. Speaking of targets, when I speak to CEOs of kind of later stage venture back companies, they talk to me about how their phone, you know, at least metaphorically, is ringing off the hook with SPAC sponsors because there's so many of them. And even though there are a lot of potential targets, the phone's ringing off the hook. You did differentiate yourselves or one of the things that does differentiate Queen's Gambit is the management team, really just the gender breakdown of the management team. How much of that was an intentional decision to say, you know what, there's a lot of us out there. We need to stand out in some way. Okay, great question. And that's at the core of our sort of, you know, structure here. So we didn't just focus on gender. We really focused on the caliber of people bringing to the table. So we've got operators, people who've taken multiple companies public as CEOs, people who've been sitting on public boards. So bring corporate governance to the, to the forefront here as well. I believe just like, you know, I named it Queen's Gambit because it's a chess strategy, right? Chess move. You have to think ahead through the entire process. So I, sta- I staffed uh, my board advisory and team with people who can assist with every step of the dispatch process. So we use a relationship filter to identify companies that we want to talk to. And uh, it's a good point you brought up when uh, people calling randomly fund managers and whatnot. So we're using um, our um, relationships to open up doors that typically are not open to others. And um, in our experience and the value add on the back end is what's going to differentiate us, I think, in getting in front of some of these attractive targets. So quality, I think, is what's going to be different about us. And that's what's going to separate us from everybody else. Gender is great, too, and it adds diversity. And I firmly believe diversity is great for returns. We are economic investors. Do you feel at all when you talk to a CEO for the first time, even though you might have a warm introduction, you know, through a network that somewhere in the back of their mind, there's like, Oh God, it's an, I'm speaking to another SPAC. It's like the, you know, the next insurance agent that walked in the door to try to sell me on something. So here's the interesting thing. We are first SPACs that these CEOs are speaking with. So we're getting access. We're really utilizing our network in a very different way. So when they, these are companies who've been approached by many SPACs, declined those conversations. And 
post-introduction through our warm, usually it's somebody who worked with the management or invested in them before. It's a pretty tight connection. They're actually intrigued and they have element of a trust and respect to engage with us. So we have very intelligent conversations and we tell them uh, about our experience. Multiple people on our side have gone through SPAC transactions recently. So we really bring this fresh lens and experience and highlight the benefits that I think CEOs have not thought about before. Overall, when you see the number of SPACs, you see the individuals who are involved in them, some of whom are very experienced, some of whom are novices. Is there a SPAC bubble right now? Good question. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, if you look at the math, right, sheer numbers, obviously when you have such a spike in numbers, you would, you're tempted to say it's a bubble. Uh, we've been saying that the market is in the bubble for the last two years as well, right? Right. So this is a bubble on a bubble. Isn't, shouldn't that scare people? It should scare people, and that's exactly the reason you should be only partnering with a high, high-quality target, because that's what's going to differentiate you on the back end. As, as when market sort of you know steps back and macro kicks in and multiples shrink, the companies that are going to do well are the fundamentally strong management teams, executors, really high-growth stories that are able to deliver. So that's why the target quality of targets is incredibly important here. You know, one of the things on the investor side, on the stock market investor side of, of the SPAC phenomenon is there's been an argument that the SPACs have helped kind of democratize the markets a little bit more. This kind of goes to some of the Reddit revolt stuff from a couple of weeks ago in the idea that a lot of these companies are being pulled forward into the public markets a little faster than they might have before. You know, a company that might have kept raising money from venture capitalists now is available. There's more growth opportunities. But on the other hand, SPAC sponsors also do very well, and the numbers are crazy for how SPAC sponsors have done over the last two years. Are SPACs, do you think, as a whole, kind of spreading the wealth more, or are they consolidating it more in the hands of a few? I think it depends on uh, SPAC. I think uh, who are the backers of the SPAC, how you're creating access to the opportunity. Um, and I think um, it could be both ways, actually. It could be, you know, when you have serial SPAC people who put out massive, massive size SPACs and you know, well over a billion, um, I think, you know, it's probably fair to say that the benefits concentrated at sponsor level. Um, and I think the SPACs that are modest in size and really focused on uh, getting the right caliber investors behind them and have a sizable pipe on the back end, I think the benefit of a sponsor is much smaller in terms of, you know, sitting at a few individuals uh, level. It's, it's spread out much broader. You know, so I think that it depends on the structure. Two final questions for you. The, the first is, by rule, a SPAC goes public, it raises its money, and then it starts trying to find a target to buy. It's not supposed to have conversations with potential targets ahead of time. That said, we have seen a few situations where SPACs seem to get a deal together really fast, and they seem to have a giant merger agreement, hundreds of pages, and lawyered really fast. Do you believe that certain SPACs are indeed front-running, that they are talking to potential targets before they go public? It's a guess game, you know, like I'm, I, I'm not a fortune teller. I know that we're not doing that, obviously. But what I do think um, that what creates a speed factor here is if you actually insert yourself in a process where a company was pretty far along an IPO path potentially and has been ready with audited financials, with all their ducks in order, so to speak, you can actually move pretty quickly. There's no, uh, you know, the, the, the length, the delay happens when companies are completely unprepared and have to go through a lot of uh, structural stuff and things like that. 
like that. So I think it's possible that some of these PACs just identified companies that already been in discussions with potential merger with somebody else and have been buttoned up to go public. So in that case, you can move pretty quickly. Uh, but no, I mean, we, we, are, we certainly um, did not and, and would not engage in a discussion with Target before, um, obviously, we're allowed to. Victoria, final question for you is about the name, Queen's Gambit. You note in a memo that you have a history of naming uh, funds and things after chess moves. That is true. Kali Capital, that is a chess move. So is it really a total coincidence that this comes out right after the Netflix show? Or is it more, there's a group of chess moves and you pick this one because, well, this is a pretty good time to pick Queen's Gambit as opposed to in 2019. Everything about our SPAC has been very well thought out, uh, from the ticker, from the name, from the players involved. Um, so Queen's Gambit is actually a chess move. It's one of the oldest chess moves, and it's used by experienced players. And we are crushing people here with experience. Every single member on my team has tremendous experience in this uh, vertical, in this with these transactions. So that was very fitting. We are all women, so Quinn is a great, uh, you know, analogy here. It's also um, uh, analogy where you make an early sacrifice for greater benefit later. So you're taking a lot of money as a target today, but it will benefit you on the back end. So there were just so many um, things that were very, very spoke to me, basically. Another element that, and I thought about it, actually, you bring a great point. So people would say, oh, she just named it after a Netflix show, right? If I'm building something with high quality, I need to educate people that we have a really phenomenal team here. How am I going to do this? Only way to do this is to get people to open up S1 and read it. So Quinn's Gambit was actually a great marketing move from that standpoint because people got intrigued, opened S1, they read it, and then they said, wait a second, this is real. This is not just some, some, somebody who's trying to uh, have a kitchen name. Did you get a call from Netflix at any point or an email from them? No, there's no, I mean, there's no, um, there, there's no, nothing. It, it's, it's, it's a name of the chess move. So nobody really owns it, right? From that standpoint. Fair enough. Uh, Victoria Grace, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back. What we're watching today is Salesforce, the enterprise software giant that announced that the vast majority of its 54,000 employees won't return to the office full time ever. Instead, Salesforce expects that about 65% of them will only come in between one to three days per week, while an unspecified number will be fully remote. Why it matters is twofold. On the micro level, it's the single largest private employer in San Francisco. Fewer Salesforce employees coming into the office means fewer people eating at local restaurants, buying goods at local stores, and so on. On the macro level, Salesforce might represent a tipping point, kind of Pied Piper of remote work being a permanent shift rather than a pandemic stopgap. Oh, and then there's also the real estate. Salesforce has so-called Salesforce towers in lots of major American cities, including the tallest and newest addition to San Francisco's skyline. When Axios on HBO asked Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff last May about whether he regretted the company's real estate investments, he replied, quote, can you ask me that a year from now? Benioff still has a couple months, but commercial real estate brokers must already be circling. And finally today, we learned that Donald Trump will not be allowed back on Twitter, even if he's reelected president in 2024. That's the word from Twitter CFO, Ned Siegel, who told CNBC, quote, when you're removed from the platform, you're removed from the platform. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. It's my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven. Have a great national umbrella day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.